You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. In John chapter 4, the first half of the chapter, and really on into the second half of the chapter as well, we have a wonderful look at what the gospel is able to do in satisfying the deepest longings inside of the human soul. Jesus is going to meet with the Samaritan woman at a well. Uh, He's going to introduce her to the living water, which would bubble up inside of her and bring her ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. Jesus would say, he who drinks of this water will never thirst again. And I think we could readily admit that mankind has a deep thirst inside of his soul. And the position of a believer and of God's word is very simple. The longing that's inside of the heart of human beings, the desire to worship at someone or something's feet, those desires will only be fulfilled in Christ, in our worship of God, and in being filled with his Holy Spirit. But that, of course, doesn't stop us from searching to and fro for experiences that will satisfy our hunger or satisfy the thirst that's inside of us. God spoke of this in Isaiah 29. In verse 8, he said that when a man pursues these other avenues of sustenance and blessing, he says when a, it, it will be like this. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or, as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. In other words, God uses the idea of a, you know, a person dreaming, a hungry man. There he is in his sleep, and he's dreaming of eating a huge meal. And in his dreams, he is satisfied. Or a thirsty man, as he, as he dreams, he is drinking and he's satisfied. But when the hungry man or the thirsty man awake, they realize that they're just as hungry as before, and they're just as thirsty as before. And if we're really honest inside of our hearts, we understand that the relationships that we pursue to satisfy us, the drugs and and substance abuse that we pursue to satisfy us, the, the recreational activities that we pursue to satisfy us, the entertainment that we pursue to satisfy us, the success that we pursue to satisfy us, we, we if we're honest, understand that when we wake up and we're really truly honest with ourselves, we're just as hungry and just as thirsty, if not more so, than when we started. And here in John chapter 4, Jesus wants to address that hunger and that thirst inside the heart of mankind. And the whole goal of this is for us to be able to, like the psalmist, diagnose our own hearts and say, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The goal is for us to walk away from this text and from God's word saying, uh, the hunger and the thirst that I have is actually one that is Godward in and towards no other 
direction. So let's read the background of the story. It says in verse 1 of chapter 4 in John that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And so uh, Jesus here discovers that his fame has been discovered by the religious right, so to speak, the Pharisees. And, you know, as he discovers that, as he learns that, Jesus really doesn't want to become a distraction. In other words, Jesus doesn't want his fame to become misinterpreted as some kind of messianic political movement. That would get him into trouble with the religious leaders, and that would get him into trouble with the Roman government. Not that Jesus was afraid of either, but he knew that there was a timing to his ministry. There was a method to his ministry, and it was not yet time for him to be thrust into the public eye in that kind of way, which would expedite the process of him being uh, taken to the cross of Calvary. And so he seeks to leave uh, the region of Judea where he would capture more attention from the religious leaders and from the Romans. And he goes out into the region of Galilee. But it says in verse 4, it says that, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now this is an interesting little line saying that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Usually we love to make a big deal about this because we would note that Jews at the time did not enjoy traveling through Samaria. They didn't like to congregate or mix or come up against the Samaritan people. That region to them was full of religious and ethnic half-breeds, which they looked down their nose upon. They would remember the establishing of Samaria in the civil divorce in the nation of Israel years previous. They would remember when the wicked King Omri up in Samaria established, you know, the capital city and worship taking place in that uh, particular region. They would remember the Assyrians coming and driving out the people of Israel up there in the north and ushering in their own religious systems and practices and intermarrying those practices with remnants of Judaism up there in Samaria. They would remember more recently that the Samaritans, although this temple had been destroyed a couple of hundred years before Christ, they would remember that the Samaritans had actually built an alternative temple uh, in the years you know, before Jesus came, which had been destroyed, as I mentioned, in order to compete with what was happening in Jerusalem. And the Jews would know that the Samaritans mixed no words in saying that they had the proper mountain to worship upon. And the Jews believed that Samaritans, especially Samaritan women, were absolutely unclean. And so when we see that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, we get excited because we see that, no, uh, you know, most Jews wouldn't have wanted to, but Jesus wanted to because he longed to meet with this woman. And I believe there's great truth to that reality. He had an appointment with this woman. But on the other hand, there actually is some evidence that this was the quickest route to get to Galilee. And many Jews actually did prefer, even with all of that said, 
to travel through Samaria. And so Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so Jesus goes into this city near a field that Jacob had given to Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So what we're discovering here is that this region is biblically, historically rich, and traditionally rich. We don't know in the Bible which well it's speaking of, but traditionally they refer to this as Jacob's well. And Jesus sat down at the end of his long journey, and he was tired, sitting beside the well. Isn't that interesting that Jesus grew physically tired? This is one of those times in Scripture where we get to have a glimpse into the humanity of Christ. It says in Philippians 2, verse 7, that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It says in Hebrews 4, verse 15, that Jesus, our high priest, has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin, and is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And here's Jesus by this, well, physically exhausted. This is something he'd never experienced from eternity past existence. But here is a man, he experiences fatigue. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. That's why he's alone. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Right? So this woman, she speaks to Jesus. You know, he asks her for a glass of water. And she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? I mean, he was breaking all kinds of rules. She didn't even know yet that he's a rabbi. Rabbis would have gone, you know, thirsty before they'd ever ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. So he's a rabbi, so he culturally shouldn't ask. He's a Jew, so culturally he shouldn't mix with a Samaritan. He's a man, so he shouldn't be mixing with a woman. And he's a Jewish man, and she's a Samaritan woman. And so... There's all types of cultural bonds that Jesus is breaking at this moment as he begins to speak uh, to this woman. And of course, she is contrasted with Nicodemus. You remember back in chapter 2, it said that Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. But after that, Jesus then ministers to individual people. First Nicodemus, uh, and now this woman. Uh, they couldn't be more different in education or in influence or in popular esteem or in their religious beliefs. But Jesus goes to this woman and he begins to minister to her and he asks her for a drink. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so Jesus begins to introduce to this woman the concept of living water. And he just says to her, he says, hey, listen, if, if you knew who I was, you would ask me to give you 
living water. Now, of course, this woman doesn't know what Jesus is referring to. But later on in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up and cries out and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture is said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds and says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so we understand that when Jesus looks at this woman and says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. We know that Jesus is talking about the living water of the spirit of God. And if you are in Christ listening to this teaching, second Corinthians one verse 22 says that as you've come into Christ, it says he also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so Jesus begins to introduce this water to this woman. And the woman said to him, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she you know, retorts and and says, well, hold on a second. Where, where, where is this living water that you're talking about? She thinks, of course, that he's speaking of natural, material, physical water. And, you know, then she can sort of draws a contrast and says, you know, Jacob, this was his, well, it was good enough for him. It's good enough for his sons. It's good enough for his livestock even. And who are you boasting about a better water than this? Jesus then explains this water to her in verse 13 when he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. This is a huge statement from Jesus. Before he even describes what the living water really is, just the potential in that line. You know, whoever drinks of this water, they're going to be thirsty again. It's as if Jesus is holding out hope. That there is something that can be partaken of. That when you drink it, thirst is eradicated. I mean, just think of that. Think of how marvelous that sounds. Think of how amazing that is. To, to be able to consume something that leads to a state of such satisfaction that it doesn't need to be consumed ever again. Just incredible. And so Jesus goes on then to explain and says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so we stand in awe of this statement from Christ because we understand that here he is saying, listen, I'm offering a brand of life that absolutely satisfies your thirst. I'm offering a brand of life that will quench the deepest desires inside of your heart. I'm offering a brand of life as you come to me, as you believe in me, as you trust in me, and as I put my spirit in you, I'm offering you a brand of life where uh, you know, I'm going to deal with the parched dryness inside of your soul. 
It's as Isaiah said in Isaiah 44, verse 3, God speaking, he says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing to your descendants. And, and I just know that when I came to Christ and really began to experience him, you know, really began to believe in him, really began to look at him as my source of life, really began to walk with him and place my faith and my trust and my confidence in him. All I know is that, that something took place. I remember early on in my Christian life, just so glad and excited to be in Christ. And I was reading the book of Romans where I really didn't know what much of it meant, but I read this line in Romans 14 verse 17 where Paul writes and says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I remember reading that and, and saying to myself, that's it. That's exactly what I've entered into. You know, I used to pursue the eating and the drinking and everything that I was about was in the material, physical realm. But, but now... There's this thing that has happened to me, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, you know, my shame has been dealt with. My guilt has been eradicated. I, I've been forgiven by God. Peace. The war is over inside of me. I'm no longer in, in turmoil and I have rest with God, the God of the universe. And joy. There's just a gladness and, and innocence a happiness. There's just a beautiful new kingdom that I've entered into. And that's what Jesus holds out to this woman. He says, you know, you're going to drink it and you will never be thirsty again. Absolutely wonderful, glorious, and powerful. The Spirit satisfies us. And But, but notice Jesus also says that that this bubbling water will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, this life is inside of me and continues to, you know, be present for me. Now, the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8 verse 26, helps us in our weakness. And, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit, his ministry is so good. And the conviction he gives and the wisdom and the guidance and the encouragement and the passion and the perspective. The simple love of God's spirit for us. And so uh, Jesus said to the woman, if you knew who it was who said this to you, you would have asked him. And we ought to ask the Lord to bless us with his living water. And so the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, thinking of the natural, the physical. And so Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I think what Jesus is doing is he's, you know, like a great physician, Jesus is diagnosing the issue inside of this woman's heart. And I love how skilled Jesus is at shifting gears and dealing with these different types of people that come across his path. And, 
And he follows a tactic here that I think is so fascinating in that he gets personal with this woman. He begins to speak to her of her own life, of her own issues. She apparently wasn't connecting the dots and realizing that she had a deep thirst inside of her heart. And so he asks her, well, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have one. And he says, that's right. You've had five and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Obviously, there's a pattern here. Obviously, you are chasing something that you are not able to find. The light of the world had exposed this woman's heart. And I think that this woman, basically, she chased what so many of us chase. She chased, uh, really, in a sense, relationships. But in it, I'm sure, she was chasing the potential security, validation, significance, or companionship that comes in some kind of earthly relationship. But you know the reality in that particular area by itself is that these things, security, validation, significance, companionship, these things are best received from God first. You know, in other words, in order for me to be a good husband or a good friend, a good parent, you know, good employee or employer, in order to be, you know, helpful and a blessing in those areas and to really actually get a lot out of those relationships as well, I've got to be rock solid in my relationship with God. I can't be chasing those relationships in order to find something. No, my pursuit is of God. He gives me his living water. I'm satisfied and I take that health and that satisfaction and I give it in the relationships that I'm in rather than so needing the relationships I'm in in an unhealthy way to somehow cure me and help me. So much better to be a giver in a relationship than it is to take. You remember Saul and David in the Old Testament? Both were kings in Israel. Saul the first, David the second. Under Saul's leadership, the nation, you know, started to pick up, started to form slightly, slowly but surely. It was more established at the end of his reign than at the beginning. But there was really nothing there at the beginning. But David, on the other hand, at the end of his reign... The kingdom had expanded its borders to such an incredible degree. The nation had come together and it was was a superpower uh, in the world at that time. And I think so much of that has to do with the inward health of David and the inward sickness of Saul. Saul needed something from the people. He needed something from that position. But David, he needed nothing because he had God. And with God, David's heart was secure. And so all the nation received from him, for the most part, the, the general rule was that of blessing, that of blessing. Oh, that we could live lives like this. But this woman was chasing, 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 and never able to find. And so uh, the Lord points this out in this woman's heart. Then she responds. And she says to him in verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this woman, more than likely she's trying to divert the conversation away from herself, but maybe she just had a, a question here. This was a doctrinal theological question. She sees that Jesus has 
spiritual understanding and insight. He, he knew how many husbands she'd had, that word of knowledge. And so she says, hey, we have a dispute with the Jews on where we're supposed to worship. Is it on our mountain, Gerizim, or is it on their mountain in Jerusalem? And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so Jesus looks at this woman. She says, hey, where are we supposed to worship? And is it on our mountain or on their mountain? And Jesus basically says, neither. You know, the day is coming and now is where people are going to worship in neither place. They will worship the Father wherever because the gospel, the cross, is going to win that kind of access for them. And I think that's an important reality for us to remember in our day and age. It's not about a church building, and it's not even about a specific style. You know, we all fall in love with our own little versions and styles of church. Theology, doctrine, that should be solid, and that should remain, and a church should be orthodox. But my goodness, the style of a church will vary from place to place, from town to town, from people group to people group. And there should be an openness and a willingness to see as many different kinds of churches established as possible. In the middle of all this, Jesus tells her that salvation is of the Jews. He himself was Jewish. And he says that there are those coming who will worship in spirit and in truth. You know, God has opened up this wonderful realm to us to just enjoy him, to enjoy his presence, to experience him. And we worship him in truth then, in spirit, you know, not in a temple necessarily, but we worship him in truth as well as we receive the gospel. And why is God able to be worshiped in, in any place by those who believe in him and worship in spirit and truth? Well, verse 24, because God is spirit. Jesus says, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so God is not held to a human building or a structure made with hands because he is spirit. And the woman said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You know, he'll, he'll speak into this matter. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And for the first time and the only time, Jesus reveals this and he reveals it to a woman up in Samaria. He would not reveal this down in Judea or Galilee, lest it expedite the cross, but he reveals it to this woman. Let the thirst that's inside your soul be filled with Christ. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.